The talk is about patience and compassion and equanimity. The Buddha taught four postures that we can uh, be mindful of. Walking, standing, sitting, and lying. And this is a uh, poem about those four postures. And the poem is by uh, Stonehouse, who was a 14th century Chinese hermit. And as you listen to the poem, uh, keep in mind that pine wind means the Buddha's teachings. Pine wind. Four mountain postures. Walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along. Grab a vine, climb another ridge. Does that sound familiar? Walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along, grab a vine, climb another ridge. Standing in the mountains, how many dawns become dusk? Plant a pine, a tree growing shade. Sitting in the mountains, zigzag yellow leaves fall. Nobody comes. Close the door and make a big fire. Lying in the mountains, pine wind enters the ears. For no good reason, beautiful dreams are blown apart. Ah. How long does it take to grow a pine tree and then have the wind flow through and have it blow the beautiful dreams apart, finally? So we finally cut through the denial, the delusion, the indifference, and we connect with life as it is. We wake up. But it takes time to plant a tree and for that tree to be mature enough for the wind to blow through it and that we do wake up. It takes time and then again it takes no time. The practice is a way of life and yet it's timeless, it's ancient. I have learned in my practice to keep doing the best I can and then let go of control of results. We can't go any faster. We can't go ahead of ourselves. That's impatience. But we can keep being where we are and doing the best we can where we are and then letting go of control. This takes great patience. It takes great compassion. It takes great equanimity. And as Christina said, this path isn't passive. Equanimity isn't passive. True balance in life, this doing the best we can, as you can see, is very active. And it takes courage. And then the letting go of control, of result, that's quite, takes such deep understanding 
and is so active. What might be easier for us is indifference, where it looks like we're really doing the best we can, but we're disconnected. And it looks like we're uh, letting go of control of results. We look equanimous, but it's disconnected. (coughs) Indifference looks like equanimity, but it's fake acceptance. And how many times today did you pretend that you were okay? Did you pretend to be accepting what was happening? (laughs) And how good we are at it when you think of what great actresses we are. We should all have the Oscar. So this middle path between repression and drowning, being lost, indulgence, or between indifference and reactivity, it requires knowing what this activeness of the heart is, this quality of, of being unnumb, awake. I was inspired to talk about a snake today because of seeing the snake out here um, this afternoon. And whenever I see a snake, I have a conditioned response of terror. When I was really young, I didn't have it. I remember the moments when I wasn't afraid of snakes, and I had that innocent curiosity. Uh, but my older sister and my mother had you know, a kind of hysteria I mean, it was an amazing hysteria around snakes. For example, if my sister had come out of an interview room this afternoon and seen the snake, you would still be hearing her scream, <laughs> and she would be um, you know, still shaking. It, it's just that really painful, hysterical response to snakes. And my mother was worse. <laughs> <laughs> And so if a snake even came on a television set, my, my older sister and my mother would be screaming. And after a while, I remember, you know, I was five years younger than my older sister, but I remember starting to really think they were really terrifying beings. Uh, and I'm kind of wired that way. Uh, so when I was maybe about 17, I decided to try to, uh, you know, work through this fear completely. And I volunteered at a a sanctuary called Laughing Brook that had raccoons and owls and all the animals of New England in uh, cages that I could bring, you know, these children from school, big school groups through, and I'd bring them through the tour of all these beings from New England. And for some strange reason that I've never figured out, they had a boa constrictor uh, (laughs) at this place a very large boa constrictor in a cage inside, and her name was Rosie Boa. Um, (laughs) And my job when the school group came was to take the snake out of the cage and very happily, you know, with no fear, show the kids, you know, how wonderful the snake was. And I was terrified of the snake. So I'd go into work early, and I'd look in the cage, and I'd be like, no, sorry. (laughs) 
but I'm going to have to, I'd talk with her and just try to, you know, overcome the fear that way. And then the kids would come in and I'd be, I'd, you know, the fear would just work up to this pitch of terror. And I'd be standing there and the kids would be there and I'd find the kid that looked the most excited about snakes. <laughs> and I'd, I'd just lift the top of the cage off and I'd grab the snake and throw it at the kid. <laughs> It was horrible. I mean, it was so bad. It was not reassuring at all, you know, to the school group. <laughs> you know, I'd make them pass it around, and then I'd make, actually make one of the kids that looked happy about snakes to put it back in the cage. So I never, I'd only touch the, you know, the snake once, and then when the kids would leave, I'd go back into the room and I'd apologize to Rosie. Um, but I grew actually more terrified of snakes in this process. Uh, and I didn't understand. You know, why was I getting more afraid? And now I can say that I forced it. I didn't have anyone helping me learn the skill of working with fear. Uh, and I don't know how many of you can relate to this, but um, fear of pain takes many, many um, faces. So maybe you're good at working with physical pain, but maybe there's something emotional that's hard for you. But usually there's something in this world that we experience uh, this withdrawal from the unpleasant from. And really, if we look closely, it's the fear of fear. For many years, I had a lot of resistance to the experience of fear when it appeared. Uh, and I thought I could just bulldoze my way through it. And as the years of my practice went on, I didn't listen to it, I didn't respect it, I kept forcing it, uh, and it kept backfiring on me. And I was growing more afraid of it. So instead of learning to um, experience it and take a dose that I could learn to be mindful of it and be strengthened by it, I kept holding my nose, jumping into it, and coming out more afraid of it. And I learned, finally, to start with loving-kindness and compassion. So I had to learn a way to connect with the experience of fear with kindness, with tenderness, rather than with that force of domination, subduing, you know, overcoming, uh, and that I was going to get rid of it finally, quickly, forever. <laughs> and I think that I can say that I have learned to respect the power of compassion, you know, that caring tenderness, and loving-kindness, uh, I've seen the power of it to, to melt that indifference or aversion uh, more than anything. And then, then I could be mindful of it. And I started being able to work with fear. And it's less terrifying to me. It's, it's a wonderful, joyful thing to see that transformation within oneself. Like today, someone said, there's a long snake outside, and we're wondering if it's a rattlesnake. <laughs> and I think, hmm. You know, there's that first, there's that, oh, you know, can I go out and look? You know, there's always that initial, hmm, snake. And then, oh, great, that interest. 
if we can learn to do this with something that we're afraid of, we can see that fear is impermanent. It will come and go by itself. And we learn this equanimity that things are as they are. And it's a true balance, not a fake acceptance. But as I said, there were many times when I would be ahead of myself, which is impatience and a lack of metta. And we can see so many times in our life where we do everything we can to make something happen and then let go of control of the result. But it's not always so easy. You know, we, it requires this balance of patience, compassion, equanimity. I have a student that relates to patience as something very negative. And for about eight years in her life, you know, in the last nine years for eight of them, she was working with something where she was doing the very best she could to make something happen. And it was something that was something that so human and something so natural. And um, it's easy for some people for this to happen. Uh, But it wasn't happening. And she was trying harder and harder, and it wasn't happening. And she would come to me for help, and she'd be crying. Uh, And I one time dared to mention the P word, patience. And she got so angry. You know, it was just like culturally it was a word that she had a hard time with. It meant submission, denial, failure. Uh, And even mentioning it, we couldn't talk about it for another two years. You know, this is a a strong story, but in a way, we all have a part of us like this with something. And she kept trying to make this happen, trying to make this happen. It wasn't happening. It was so painful. And after four years, she came in, and she said, (laughs) kind of like I'd never mentioned the word before. It was so funny. I was sitting there, and she said, maybe I should try patience. You know how we block something? I mean, that somebody has even mentioned a lot, and you know, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, mm, maybe you should try patience. Are we ready for this now? And she just started sobbing. You know, just that conditioning—the conditioning for me to be terrified around snakes, the conditioning for her to feel like a failure around patience—that it means futility, passivity, denial. So it's very important for us to really reflect and examine how do we relate to patience? How did you relate to it today? Or with something in your life this year? Because patience really requires mindfulness, loving-kindness, compassion, and equanimity. It's a deep acceptance of how things are. Very significantly, it's an acceptance of the pain in this world. It's an acceptance of suffering. Equanimity, one phrase for it is, things are as they are. It's an unconditional acceptance. And it requires a letting go of control. There's so much in life that we can't control. This doesn't mean, again, that word passivity. The Buddha taught the word dukkha, translated sometimes as suffering. 
or unsatisfactoriness. And we have to keep this word in context of the word change, anicca. He taught that everything that takes birth will pass away. Everything conditioned will disappear. That that's the nature of life. And so it's because everything is conditioned that appears uh, that that experience is unsatisfactory. Meaning that it can't yield a lasting, permanent happiness. So this doesn't mean that we don't experience the happiness of pleasure. And that's so important for us to understand that if this isn't the denial of pleasure, it's really understanding that there's a deeper kind of happiness that's possible. Deeper than the pleasure-pain syndrome. The Buddha taught four foundations of mindfulness. You know, the first foundation is all aspects of body. And the second foundation of mindfulness is understanding, feeling. And this doesn't mean emotion. It means that with each moment of consciousness, there is a corresponding mental feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So if you can just grasp the vulnerability of of us beings that are born into this world, where we have no control over each moment at one of the six sense doors, with contact, with an object of consciousness, like a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, body sensation, there's either a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And it's changing every moment. And this is the world of change that we're born into. You know, so this is what we mean by not having so much control is this world of change that we're born into. And we suffer because we're not aware of this. You know, this is where we, um, as human beings, because we don't look closely at this, we, we suffer because we're trying to control change. And we're reacting to the passing of pleasure with attachment we grab on. We react to the appearance of pain or unpleasantness by withdrawing with fear or pushing away, aversion. So if we explore what a separate self is when we're born into a stream of change, we can start to see that any time we try to manipulate or control that moment of pushing away is a moment of a a temporary separate self, and we suffer. A temporary moment of attachment, of clinging to pleasure. You know, so we call suffering in this case the reaction to change. But it's very important we understand that this is in the context of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. It's really the nuts and bolts of human suffering. So when we say we do the best we can in life and then let go of control, it's really in in relationship to this that I'm talking about. 
that we pay attention as carefully as we can. The Buddha taught that a guarded mind brings happiness. And you see that that's in relationship to this, that if we're not paying attention, we're just going to be blindly reacting to life as it is, to things as they are. And it's so painful. Not seeing suffering is suffering. Not understanding our own suffering is suffering. So this uh, student who gradually has started in the last bit of time to open to her conditioning around patience has started to see that patience isn't necessarily bad, passive, submissive, or giving up. But it's, it's not taking life personally. It's a non-identification with life, an ex- a deep acceptance of life with compassion, with tenderness, rather than self-blame or blaming others. It's not a failure for us to put a lot of energy into something and then have to let go of control of the result. Uh, My sister was diagnosed uh, with ovarian cancer over four years ago. And she, she tried so hard. You know, she had chemotherapy every three weeks for those four years without a break. And it was so moving to see that level of um, doing the best she could. Um, And after about three and a half years, it was getting clear that she was going to have to start working with letting go of control of the result in a deep way. She had to really start facing that she was going to die. And there was a point where my older sister and I were visiting my father and stepmother, and my stepmother has a very um, tough attitude toward letting go of control. And she started saying, like, that my sister shouldn't give up. You know, she was saying that stopping chemotherapy was giving up in a very negative way. And I could see my older sister and I were just standing there, and we both kind of almost wanted to kill my stepmother (laughs) when she said it. It was like, and we both went back into this, you know, watched, again, watched our conditioning, our really young conditioning, come back in right at that moment. And she went outside, had a cigarette, poured herself a glass of wine, and I started making jokes. You know, it was like immediately upon, you know, it was either, well, shall we murder our stepmother, or shall we just resort to the old conditioning? And it was so hard for us just to be there and go, wow, you know, tough. It was so tough and so hard and so painful. It was like her heart just closed. She couldn't, you know, with a compassionate attitude, once I kind of got over it and could just like be with it around my stepmother's attitude, I could just see she couldn't face it. So she just closed and got tough. And it was so painful because she had to disconnect from the whole process. And she missed the gift of it. Hmm. In these times like that, 
there's a um, Native American saying from the Ojibwe tradition. Uh, some of you might know it. It's so beautiful. Sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while great winds are carrying me across the sky. When my sister did die, for a few days, I found myself walking around the house going, whimper, 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 whimper. I feel sorry for myself, whimper, 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 whimper. And it was so great just to let myself not try to not feel sorry for myself. I did, you know. And by letting myself feel that, I felt like I was able to heal so much more cleanly than shutting down to that self-pity. We can see in our practice in our life that we can put in our time and we can do our best and then things don't often always happen the way we think they should. Uh, So in a way life uncovers a lot of our unconscious expectations and then we really face what the Buddha was teaching about suffering or dukkha in that we're really facing change. And there are times when I'll see that I teach this, you know, I teach about facing change over and over, and sometimes I'll find myself hating change. You know, it's like when my sister died, it was like, I hate change. (laughs) But really, it was such a gift. It was so powerful. So we can get caught either in self-pity or blaming ourselves or blaming others or disappointment when life doesn't go our way. Or we can start facing those feelings and lower our expectation, let go of control, practicing the mindfulness, the compassion. And this is when true exploration can happen because things don't always go our way. And if we think it should, life should, we get lost in arrogance or lost in delusion. There's a Sayadaw from uh, Burma that I have come to appreciate a lot. And this is something he wrote from a book called Snow in the Summer. His name is Sayadaw Uyodaka. And keep in mind that one way we can think of mindfulness is that it's simply the intention to understand rather than to judge. Over and over, knowing that we're here to try to understand rather than to judge. He wrote, I don't want judgment. I want understanding. I am not perfect. So I am scared of those who are judgmental. I want to be left alone. I've done a lot of unwholesome things in my life, but I don't blame myself or others. It's impossible not to have done anything unwholesome. I am trying to practice Dhamma, and I'm happy about that. It's so simple. I don't want judgment. I want understanding. I'm trying to practice Dhamma, and I'm happy about that. Doing the best we can, 
and then letting go of control. Sometimes when I'm teaching and I look out among all of us and I think about what's going on in each of our heads, you know, just think about what was going on inside your head today and how noisy it really is. (laughs) And then multiply it by 85 women. Yeah? And then multiply it by all the humans on the planet. And we might start understand why we can connect sometimes with the Buddha's teaching around suffering. If we listen to our own mind for five minutes, never mind an hour, or a retreat, you start to see that that we do have judgmental thoughts. Um, There's a lot of judging. And I remember the time when I finally started to realize that I didn't have to take it personally. That it's just judging. We don't have to control it. We don't have to manipulate it. We just let it pass through. And it's not a problem. On the self-retreat I just did, I was uh, sharing with one of my groups. I had some names for some of the different thought patterns. And one of them was Michelle on the podium. You know, (laughs) just, just Michelle was getting into the judgment about something or other. And finally it was like, okay the podium. And you get off the podium. It's that simple. And then there was Michelle the Oracle. Planning, 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 figuring out the future. And I'd finally go, you know, this isn't your goal, being an Oracle. (laughs) Let's just try, you know, letting it go, being in the moment. And it just cuts through that suffering when we disidentify with the thinking. But that's not disidentifying with life. We're not, we're not closing our heart. This means we stay connected with what's happening. We face it. It's honesty, judging. And a lot of the practice is going to, towards more and more honesty. It's like, okay, it's just judging. Can we tolerate it? Can we face it? If we're protected by mindfulness, we can. Sometimes we do foolish things and we need to have a lot of compassion toward ourselves. This winter I had a family visiting um, my husband and I and we went over to the big island from Honolulu and we stayed at this place where we were cooking our food for for quite a while and it was sort of like we were all kind of um, tired, the adults, and we weren't really into doing anything fancy in terms of cooking. And um, the children really wanted us to do something special with them. So the last day we were there, someone had told us, actually had invited us out to this hotel that had this buffet, you know, like one of those buffets. And I have never been to anything like this, actually. It was unbelievably decadent. I mean, it was just I mean, I know probably some of you have been to buffets, but this was, <laughs> this was the mother of all buffets. I mean, it was a huge room. And just the appetizers. You know how in our culture it can be so disgustingly 
amazing. You know, and, and I started being very judgmental about this. It was like, oh, all the starving people, and I'm not going to eat so much, and I can't stand this. And then it was sort of like I started looking around, and I went to the dessert table, and it was like I got, o- I got over my judgment really quickly. <laughs> Greed just took over. It was incredible. But I was determined. I was determined to pace myself. And so I got into this whole righteous thing that I was going to pace myself, right? So I'm sitting at this big table with all these people who I considered weren't pacing, myself, pacing themselves, and I was getting snottier and snottier and more arrogant, and they were going back and forth with their plates, and I was, you know, had a few things on my plate, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> and the little kid next to me, um, at a certain point, Steve kind of, kind of overdid it on the ice cream at the end, and the little boy copied him, and he was sitting next to me, and he kind of turned white, and he said, Michelle, my stomach's having convulsions. (laughs) 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 So Steve went to get him Pepto-Bismol, but did I pay attention? No. I thought, my stomach's not going to have convulsions. You know, I didn't overdo it. And so I went to the dessert table, which I should have probably started with, you know, not done anything else. So again, like, I've really not done this before. So I went through and I got this raspberry Windsor tort that I don't even like. You know, that's just what amazed me as I was taking things and, I, and the coconut cake. And I kept thinking, um, this, is, this isn't going to make any difference. That's what I kept telling myself. You know, it's just I take a little bit on the plate, a little bit on the plate, a little bit on the plate. This isn't going to make any difference. This isn't going to make any difference. And then all of a sudden, my stomach started to have convulsions. And it was so painful. You know, it was just like the whole experience just seemed so incredibly painful to me. But I went from that aversion to greed to sickness. <laughs> And then I felt so stupid. You know, I felt so utterly stupid. And I started feeling that, like, moment where I was going to pick up the whip and just start beating myself mercilessly. And I thought, wait a minute. You know, I just overate. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not coming here again. You know, but it was just, okay, let's just start again. You know, it was incredibly unpleasant. You know, the, the experience in my stomach... I've never felt that unpleasant <laughs> before. But then wherever you find yourself, this is the beauty of mindfulness. It's like, okay, things are as they are. Can I learn from this? Wherever we are, it's so important, that patience, the compassion, the equanimity. So how do we disconnect from ourselves? How does indifference happen? If we look closely at equanimity, things are as they are. The heart isn't disconnected, it's connected, or the mind's connected. Indifference is when the heart closes off. But we we pretend we're connected. That's why I call it fake acceptance. The opposite of this is reacting to pain in the world with aversion or fear. And it's reacting to the pleasure in the world with attachment or clinging. 
So in terms of how life is, we can either disconnect indifference and pretend that we're there, but we really don't care. Or we'll be caught in the suffering of reaction. So let's take something very innocuous, like low energy or sleepiness. Do we connect with sleepiness or not? So if we're connected and we just take it honestly, it's being able to notice, oh, low energy. It's not personal. It doesn't refer back to an I or a me or a my. Mindfulness, that soft readiness for whatever's happening. Fake equanimity or indifference, the disconnect, would be, oh, I don't really care if I fall asleep. I don't care if there's low energy. One closes off, and it can seem like equanimity, um, but it's, a, it's like a mild reaction. And maybe some of us don't have like the intense reaction of aversion or attachment, but the milder reactions are actually harder to see. We do it a lot, but we're not... It's like learning to be mindful of indifference. It's not to judge it. I'm not suggesting we try to get rid of this or, or try to push it away as much can we explore when we disconnect with that mild reaction. Because if we don't look closer and we pretend we're accepting, we're lost. We're caught in the passivity. This is passivity, is indifference. It's the disconnect. It's denial. And whether we fall or sleep or not, we're identified, we're caught, and we're really reinforcing aversion to the sleepiness. So if sleepiness happens, or low energy, can we do the best we can to be awake with acceptance, out of acceptance, not out of denial or aversion? and then let go of control of of the result. And this takes a lot of balance. Can you imagine that you can learn all about freedom through sleepiness? This is just what I just described. You know, what if low energy rolls in Can you relate to it as your ticket to freedom? Because it is. Anything that rolls in, anything that appears, can teach you about indifference or reaction, freedom or peace, a mild reaction or not. What about physical pain in the body? If indifference arises, will feel like, well, I don't really care about this pain. I don't care if this pain appeared again. And this is how I will, I will sound in my mind, say that it's something like fear, or maybe it's like a chronic emotional pain or a chronic pain. And you can kind of hear the mind go, I don't really care if this is here again. But it, deep down it's like, I really care that this appeared again. I don't want it. But we, we pretend that it's okay. And look at the world. Look at how the world is, because people are pretending it's okay. 
So there's this possibility of connecting with indifference, of connecting with this mild reaction. And it's, it makes the difference between really being able to explore in this practice. It's really being able to make it a way of life in our daily life. When you open a newspaper, it's a great place to explore indifference. You know, you find a headline that you don't like. And it's not like you throw the newspaper across the room and go, oh no. It's more like, I don't really, I don't really think I want to read about that. Yeah? It's, that, it's just that mild reaction. And instead of judging it, can you just pay attention to that closing down? Explore it. Become interested in it. One way that I have found this to um, deepen, this exploration, is through the practice of compassion. You've heard um, Christina and I guiding the loving-kindness practice, and the Buddha taught that the proximate cause for the arising of loving-kindness is to see the goodness in another. And I described how you can look at, for the most beautiful angle of a flower, the proximate cause for loving-kindness to arise is you see the most beautiful angle of a person. It helps us connect. With compassion, um, the Buddha taught that tuning into the helplessness of the suffering is the proximate cause for compassion. Tuning into helplessness. So another way that that's described is the quivering of the heart in relationship to the suffering. Uh, But if we can explore that with very mild things, you know, like a little, the little pain arises in the body. And can you just be aware of that helplessness in the face of the suffering? If you can, you can respond with care rather than pushing it away or pulling back. It's so interesting. What I found was, um, after many years of practice, I was taught the compassion practice. And I wasn't even taught it for so many years. And when I first was taught it, I thought, you know, who left this out of kindergarten? (laughs) Who left compassion out of our human curriculum? Any of us can just take a mild assessment of the human world and get that there's a little suffering happening here, yeah? And we tend to have that lack of understanding of how to deal with it. And yet compassion is a wonderful feeling. It's a pleasant feeling of care. And I learned in terms of practicing it that one can go into the pain too much and drown in it, or you can step back so far that you're not connected with it. And here we come into the sitting day after day, and can we feel compassion for our pain? Do we care about it? Hopefully this is what motivates you to be here. Are we motivated to understand out of care for the pain in the world? Well, at least it's hopefully one motivation. And I saw that 
over time in practicing compassion that we can turn our awareness, we can transform our awareness of suffering into compassion, into this wonderful feeling of care. And this might sound a little exaggerated, but I can assure you at times that I have felt (laughs) that I would like to be given all the pain in the world so that I could care about it when I really feel that compassion the most deeply because it feels wonderful to care about pain. And it's a great gift that you can give to other beings to start shifting the awareness of our relationship to pain to this, just this gentle care. And it just takes practice. It's also gradual, I would say. You know, it's like um, when I described working with the fear and the snake and Rosie Boa, and I took too big a chunk, and then I was feeling like um, I was more afraid of the fear. It's like this with, with any kind of pain. I have a friend who just had some dear people in her life pass away. And someone told her that she was crying too much and that she should be accepting more. And I, I was just listening to her, and having just been through it, I was like, you're missing them. It's okay if you're missing them and you start caring about it. You know, it's like that feels wonderful to be connected enough to miss and then to care. You know, and the bottom line really um, is, you know, do we love? Do we love in this world? And can we love and then let go of control? Can we love and let go of control? There's a great Neruda um, poem, Pablo Neruda, and I didn't bring the whole thing with me, but the, the last line in it is, my duty is to love and to say goodbye. If we really get that we take birth in this world and that we take a birth, birth into this world of change, and can we love, can we be connected, not indifferent, but can we, we be detached enough to be able to be connected and to say goodbye, connected and say goodbye? That's what we're doing with the breath. That's what we're doing with each body sensation. That's what we're doing with each sound with each step, step, we're asking you to notice its appearance, its movement, its disappearance, its appearance, its movement, its disappearance, and to really trust the awareness of that, and to trust the awareness of it, and to trust the awareness of it over and over. I found when I had to say goodbye to my sister that all of this practice that I've done with each breath, with each sound, it was like I could do it. I could love her and say goodbye. And the day before she died, there was still attachment in our voices. And then the next day, she had to go. And I mean, you know, I miss her and it's, I've been through my process of grieving and I still will. But that's 
that's the beauty of life and learning life and death and being here, mortality. If we can't do this, we're going to be shut down. (laughs) And we'll be like my stepmother. (laughs) And that's an awful way to go, you know. And I feel for her. And I look out at all of us and I think how lucky we are. You know, it's like, look at us. Look at what we're getting to do, us humans, here in this room right now. And in this world, it's like in this human world, it's so rare. It's so precious. You know, I would give anything in my life for the moments of insight I've had. You know, everything else, it, it's great, but it isn't worth it, you know, compared to the moments of insight about life and death and freedom. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.